0: Yes, I, um, that image will be up there for a bit, and I, I did try and check to make sure there weren't any rude words in it, but I'm not really sure, to be honest. <clears throat> so maybe that'll t- occupy your attention as we go through some of these things today. Um, if you have your Bible or you ha- if you're using an app or whatever, definitely keep it open to John 20 because we'll be looking back at, um, at the words there. Uh, I absolutely love this story. and I was really happy to be able to speak on it today. Now, I mean, if you've been part of Redeemer or really any kind of halfway decent church for any length of time, you probably heard something along the lines of like, well, Christianity isn't a religion so much as it's like a a relationship. It's about a a living, breathing relationship with a person, with Jesus. It's not a set of rules It's knowing a person. Now, this is most definitely true, but it's easy to say something like that and not believe it. It's even easier to say something like that and not live as if that's true. Uh, Christianity is about trusting Jesus in everything, for everything. And we're going to spend two weeks looking at this. We'll look at trust and doubt this week, and we'll look at trust and where we put our trust in other places uh, next week. Um, Liz gave a bit a br- brief background of the, uh, the Charlton get-together where we kind of had this going on. Um, and there's all sorts of really interesting stuff in here. Again, hopefully nothing rude. Um, there's questions of like, what makes someone trustworthy? Uh, what characteristics make someone trustworthy? Keeping their promises. Someone wrote in there like Reese's Pieces, so, so I don't know what that's about. Um, I guess if someone has Reese's Pieces, I trust that I will enjoy them. The um, Who do you trust? Friends, dad, parents, family? Um, All sorts of stuff like that. And it's a good thing that Christianity is about a relationship first and not rules first. And there's lots of reasons why that's good for us. But one of them is that in a relationship, there is space for doubt. If it's a real relationship, there's a space for someone to doubt. For example, I have a relationship with Christina. We have a great relationship. We met 22 years ago. Super old saying, such a thing. Um, Been through just a few life changes together. She's my wife, and I completely trust her with everything. And she's not here, so I can say all this. Um, Sometimes she might say something that I doubt. That does happen. If you know someone well, they might say something, yeah, I don't believe that. I don't think you're actually going to do that. Now, whether or not she comes through on that thing, there's space for me to doubt, because we have a trusting relationship. And the whole thing doesn't fall apart because she doesn't come through on one small little thing. No, that's different than a set of rules. Rules are meant to not be personal. Rules are impersonal by nature. And so, but a relationship is obviously personal, so there's space for stuff like doubt. Now, just like any relationship, it's not like these two are, have to be pit against each other. There are rules in every relationship. Like if you're married, it's a good idea to sleep at your house. It's a good idea to not date someone else if you're married. There are all sorts of rules that come with marriage. But the rules don't come first. The relationship comes first. It's relationship first, then the rules. So with Christianity, there is a space for doubt, not for us to stay there, but for us to know Jesus in a way that we wouldn't have before. When we bring our doubt to Jesus, he shows us to be the loving God in ways that we would have completely missed otherwise. And dealing with doubt well is an important part of what it means to grow in faith, what it means to grow in trust. Now, what we normally do is either pretend that our doubt isn't there and try and cover it up with fig leaves and be like, oh, no, no, I never, I never doubt, and I'm a perfect Christian. I believe everything that I read all the time, and I read all the time, by the way. Don't ask me again. You know, we, we're, like, we, we're like, maybe we protest a bit too much. Um, but but what, if, if, we, if we live that way, without doubt, what we're left is a very rule-based Christianity, and that's not joyful for anybody. So we can cover it up, <clears throat> or we can do the other thing and think that doubt in itself has merit. Like, doubt is a, is a good end point for us to stay on. Doubt becomes a badge of honor. We've been culturally conditioned to this. Only those with healthy doubt are truly authentic, is kind of what we're told. We hold on to doubt so strongly. One might call it belief. But the doubt we think we have is just belief by another name. Doubt in all its forms, what it really does in all its forms, if we stay in doubt, it keeps joy away from us at arm's length. It keeps joy, it keeps love, it keeps honor, obedience, all that kind of stuff that keeps us away from us. But in Christianity, there is a purpose for doubt. It's not like something we need to cut out and carve out and pretend like it never existed. There's a purpose for it. That's what we're going to discover in these verses here. The purpose is for us to cultivate a deeper trust than what we had before. When we bring our doubts to God, we get to know Him in ways that we wouldn't have had otherwise. When we trust, we open ourselves up to new life, new hope, new joy, obedience, and not just for ourselves, but for other people, because we get to live this way in front of other people. Jesus sees us in our doubt. He sees us there. He doesn't shrink back, but he takes a step forward and asks us to believe. Now, for everyone gathered here and for people who are watching online, there is a range of our belief in Jesus. Some here believe in Jesus wholeheartedly and have for a long time. Some are kind of not really sure where they are with Jesus. Some definitely do not believe in Jesus, but there's some, like, curiosity there. We all, and in all those kinds of beliefs, we all vary. But one thing that we all have in common is that we all doubt, regardless of whether you believe in Jesus or not, we all definitely doubt. Where we differ is what we do with those doubts. Trusting Jesus means bringing him our doubts. And I'm going to assume that you have them, because I know you do, because you're a human being. So trusting Jesus means bringing him our doubts. Now, if at any point you're like, I want to hear more about that, or I don't see where that comes from in the Bible, or I have lots of questions, or I completely disagree with you, Greg... You can go to that website there on the screen, RedeemerMCR.com slash ask, and anonymously put in the questions, and we'll talk about them after the service, or after the sermon. So this story we have here in these verses, this is only told in John's gospel. In Matthew and Mark, we don't really get anything. The end of Mark is basically people are running away, afraid and scared. Um, In Luke, all the disciples doubt. But here, John hones in on one particular disciple's doubt. There's plenty of doubt from all the disciples' During all of the Gospels. Basically, if there's anything the disciples didn't get, it was what Jesus was about and what he was teaching over and over and over again. But the specific thing that Thomas doubted was the resurrected Jesus, the resurrection. And I wonder if maybe you're there with him. I mean, Christ had five appearances on one day, the resurrected Jesus had five appearances on one day, and then there are five more spread out over 40 days, and then he appears to Saul of Tarsus. That story is told in Acts. Jesus' appearances, when you read those resurrection appearances, they were not initially welcomed by his followers. They weren't like, oh, yes, this is awesome. They were kind of like, this is very strange, or I don't believe, or they didn't even see, they missed who he was completely, didn't even get to understand who he was. I mean, the end of Mark says that Jesus' followers uh, ran away scared and didn't say anything to anybody because they were scared. That's how the gospel ends. Like, so it's not like all the other disciples are in on it, and they're sort of like, oh, we totally get it. Thomas, what's your problem? Like, everyone has issues here, and those are for the disciples. So if you have doubt, you're just like one of the disciples. And the resurrected Jesus, I'm telling you, the resurrected Jesus is not a convenient belief for anybody. It's difficult for everybody, including the people who knew him, like from actually seeing him in person. Now, as we read the Bible, we find that, yes, there are stories about other people in a different culture and different time. But they're also, the reason why we get to read them today, the reason why we spend time delving into these things today, is they're also stories about us. So as we bring our lives to the Bible, the first thing we should notice is that Thomas is us. He's not somebody else. He's not, I'm, unfortunately, he's got the term doubting Thomas. It's like, that's what he's known as. That, like, because of this one story here, thanks, guys, As I'm sure what Thomas is saying. Thomas comes into the story as a skeptic. This is all of us. We live in a very despiritualized Western world. You don't go, uh, you aren't worried about angels and demons and powerful spiritual forces as you're doing your weekly grocery shop. You're just not. I guarantee you you're not. Like, I just know that you're not. We don't walk around wondering about those things. We're born into a very spiritually skeptical culture, which is different than Thomas's culture. So we're probably steps farther back from Thomas to begin with. And Thomas was even full of zeal. There there was was a time where Thomas completely misunderstood what Jesus was saying. Um, He basically thought it meant, like, leading their little group of 12 to their death, and Thomas says, yes, let's go with him, and we're going to die with him. So he's like full of enthusiasm and zeal, even if he completely misses the point. But no amount of passion, no amount of zeal, no amount of enthusiasm covers up of doubt. We can be super passionate and also have doubts. Sometimes the enthusiasm we have ends up being this like projected passion to come across as passionate so that no one else thinks that we live with doubts. The amount of times passionate people come around and we never see them again. Conversations with people who want to change the world and the next week they completely like ghost the church or they ghost you. You're like, oh, I thought that person was all about this thing. That's all part of in all of us. We all have part of that in us. Sometimes our projected passion is nothing more than a cover-up for the shame of doubt. But no amount of passion is a cover-up for doubt. No amount of passion is a cover-up for our shame either. And unfortunately in the church, doubt has often been associated with shame. Shame. And as shame works, the way that it works is we carry it around in darkness. Shame isolates, and you never want to like share when you're feeling shameful. You never want to share its burden. But that's not how God uses doubt, especially in this passage here. And that's not how we're supposed to be as God's church either. There is no shame in doubt. Shame hides, it separates, it isolates. God's family doesn't act like that because that's not what God is about. But maybe for Thomas, there's also something more than mere skepticism as well. It could be I'm just spitballing here, maybe the insanity of someone raising themselves from the dead. That that doesn't sound like skepticism, that sounds like realism to me. Like if you knew somebody, uh, or say we both knew somebody, and they died last week, and you're like, oh my gosh, can you believe it? I just saw Greg, like he was dead, and now he's alive, and we chatted, and he ate some fish on the side, like, that's crazy, unless I actually see Greg, and however he died, then I'm not going to believe. That would be a very kind of normal response. In fact, if you didn't respond that way, I'd be like, no, they're really gullible. They'll believe anything. You can tell them anything. This kind of thing just doesn't happen. Well, for Thomas and for us, whether it's skepticism or just kind of realism, our spiritual uh, imaginations are just not formed very well. We can't fathom God working in ways that he's promised. We can't fathom being healed in, from difficult relationships because we can't imagine such a thing. We don't ask God to work probably often in powerful ways because we can't even imagine him working in those powerful ways. So as we kind of put ourselves in that situation of Thomas, hearing his, his friend, his leader, his rabbi, who he kind of thinks is maybe the son of God, but the disciples still really didn't get all what that meant. Maybe he did raise from the dead, and you're skeptical. Like, unless I see that, I'm not going to believe it. Like, actually, we, yeah, we are like Thomas. We're a lot like Thomas. So Thomas is us. And we're Thomas. We have doubts, and that's not a shameful thing. That's, I think, probably would be helpful for us to spend more time to be conversant with our doubts, to get to know them a bit, to maybe befriend them even. And as Thomas did, air our doubts in community. He told all of his friends there, I don't believe it, and a week goes by. We're not told anything of his friends saying, how horrible are you, or we must prove this to Thomas. A week goes by of of Thomas living in that doubt along with his community. And what he also does is he brings a doubt to Jesus as well. So bringing our doubts to our community and to Jesus is kind of the way to go forward if we have them. And if we aren't doing that in our missional communities, we aren't making space for that, man, what are we doing? We all have doubts. Let's talk about them. So Thomas, he asks for proof of the disciples. He wants the data. He wants the information. The week goes by, and then Jesus now appears again to the disciples. He looks at Thomas, and he offers the data that Thomas wanted. It's like, oh, you wanted to see the nail marks? You wanted to see the, you know, the, my side? Oh, here you go. You can put your hand in there. You can check this out. See, Jesus knew Thomas's doubts. Jesus was not with Thomas when he said, I have all these doubts, but yet he knew them. And actually, he probably knows Thomas's doubts better than Thomas knows himself. And I think that's true for all of us. Jesus knows our doubts. It's not some kind of surprise, some kind of mystery. Oh, my gosh, I cannot believe they don't believe in me. Oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. So he wasn't physically present when Thomas was airing his doubts, and yet he showed up. He knew them. Jesus knew Thomas's doubts, and he knows ours. Did Thomas, did his doubts keep Jesus away? No. In fact, in the way this story is told, Jesus comes closer to Thomas more than the other disciples. He takes a step closer to Thomas. He directs his, uh, his words to Thomas, and then he offers what Thomas has asked. Jesus does not shrink back from our doubts, and so we don't need to either. Here's the thing that Jesus knows our doubts, and He comes to us in them. They don't have. If we end in doubt, they will be obstacles to believe. But this is the crazy thing that God does. God uses our doubts as a vehicle for belief. What a loving, good. What that's. What a gentle God. He moved heaven and earth for us. We don't believe, and still He lowers Himself to our level so that we would understand how much He loves us. That's an amazing thing. This is also why it's so important for us to be conversant with our doubts, because if Jesus comes in our doubts. And if we don't engage those doubts, we're going to miss knowing aspects of him we would have known otherwise. We're going to miss God if we avoid our doubts. But let's look um, at this story here. What makes the change for Thomas? What makes the change from saying, I don't believe at all, to saying, my Lord and my God, which is like the first statement of belief in, in a resurrected Jesus? Not seeing the nail marks, not feeling Jesus' side. What we're told is when Jesus arrives, He's there in person, and he speaks. This is an experience with the resurrected Jesus. He hears him, and he sees him. Now, we're not told that Thomas tried to feel those nail marks or put his hand on the side. We're not told that at all. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. We don't know. We're not given that information. One commentator in writing about these verses said, At the sight of Jesus, all his doubts vanished, and he did not need to apply any of his tests. Thomas saw and heard. Jesus tells him to believe, and he does. He says, My Lord and my God. Ironically, it is Thomas's doubts that leads him to belief. Thomas's doubts lead him to belief. A powerful person could force someone to believe. An all-powerful God can use doubts as a vehicle for belief. That's kind of ironic and almost funny even. The thing that we think is going to keep us away from God, like not believing in Him, if used correctly in the way the Bible teaches us, can actually have us enjoy God even more than we did before. My Lord and my God. So when they're saying like, my master, my leader, my king, my God, this is who Jesus is. He's not just a good guy. He's not just a good teacher. He doesn't have just some good ideas. He is God himself. The doubt that previously prevented Thomas from believing that Jesus is God is now vanished because he had an experience with the resurrected Jesus. Now, of course, it sounds insane, that a human can raise themselves from the dead. That's not just improbable. That's impossible. But if Jesus is God, and that makes things a bit different, because if if he's God, he can kind of do whatever he wants, right? (laughs) Because he's God. makes it a lot more probable. So ultimately, what this story teaches us is even though we're Thomas, we have those doubts, Jesus knows them. The good news is that skeptics can believe. Skeptics can believe. Even skeptics like us, even those who cover up their doubt through projected passion. Thomas moves to belief because he's seen Jesus, not because he held on to doubt, not because he followed the rules, not because he got the data, and all those things are good, there are rules, there is data, there is information, but because he saw Jesus, he had this experience with the personal Lord. And actually, he had that experience in a way that none of us can have right now. We can't have the same experience Thomas did. For Thomas to have seen Jesus and to still hold on to his doubt would have been illogical and ridiculous. Him to say, I'm not going to believe unless I see Jesus. He's like, okay, here I am. Now you see me and you have to believe now. For him to say, oh, I don't believe anymore. That would be ridiculous because he's been given the information. Through experiencing Jesus, what was impossible before now becomes an undeniable reality. And Thomas has to realize, has to reckon with that. Jesus came to him. So when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, what that is, is a leap of faith. Now, I often do not like that term leap of faith because what it often, when people use that, They use that as a way to check your brain at the door when coming to matters of spirituality and faith. They say like, oh, uh, science and faith, they can't be reconciled. And so what you need in order to become a Christian and to still care about science is this leap of faith or like history and, and faith, those things like they don't really coincide. So you need to have this leap of faith to believe in who Jesus is. I think that is all like the worst kind of rubbish I've ever heard in my life. There's a lot of great information here. A lot of very learned people who have done a lot of uh, digging in good information. Faith is always informed by fact. And you do not need to leave your brain at home when you go on a journey of faith. Faith is always informed of fact, or at least faith always ought to be informed by fact. I have faith that Christina loves me, not because of a lack of facts, but because there are facts that back it up. Not because we have some kind of document of us being married or whatever, no, because there are facts in my life that back it up. Colin has faith that I love him and I care for him. I mean, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because he has so many facts to back it up. Also, my son might have a little bit more. <laughs> a leap of faith is less like a blindfolded jump across a Grand Canyon, which is often how it's told. It's less like that and more of like the way that a little child will jump from a play structure into the arms of their parents. Now, think of that little kid up on, on, a, on a playground. They're looking down. A little kid's life, and my life still because I'm a very short person, is like this. <laughs> You're always looking up. But now they're up on this thing that it's like you know two or three, four times their height, and they're looking down on on their grown-up, on their adult, on the most powerful people they know in this world, and they're told to jump into their arms. For in a child's brain, they probably can't understand how am I going to actually survive this? Do they know the rate of gravity, nine point two or whatever the thing is per meter per second? Do they? uh, Yep, that was mumbled over that one. Do they know of you know momentum and they don't know the information. They don't have the data on the science side, but they do have the data of the parent that they're about to jump, their, jump into their arms, or whoever adult it is. They know that person who is telling them to jump cares for them. That person's not going to put them in harm. That person's safe, so I'm going to do what that person says. And actually, it's kind of fun to do it as well. So they want to do that too because they're little adventurers. That is more of like what a leap of faith is instead of a blind kind of, I don't believe in anything, but I'm, or I don't understand any facts or any information, but I'm going to believe anyway. That's, that's, that's not what Christianity is about. Thomas trusts this person. It's his Lord. It's his God. Were all his questions answered? No. Are all our questions answered? No. What did it look like? Have you ever thought about the resurrection? I mean, there's a lot less written about Jesus' resurrection than there is about his death or even about his life. What was it like at the moment of his resurrection? What did that look like? Did he like vanish into thin air? Was it like a sparkly like fairy dust thing what did that look like i don't know we're not given that information what exactly was he doing like in between dying and resurrected like where was he what did that actually look like we have some information not a whole lot this new body of jesus it's not a ghost because he can eat but he can also like walk through walls apparently what in the world is going on we're not told we're not given any of that information those are some pretty big questions but we don't know the answers to those things i want the body cam footage where is the information? I want to see it in real life to prove, oh, okay, if I have that, then I'll have enough. But I can take leaps of faith because I trust the person of Jesus. I don't have to have the body cam footage because there are so many other situations in my life where I get to trust in Jesus. I trust him. And I can continue to take leaps of faith in how I live my life because I trust him, just the way that Thomas is talking about here. I may not give all the information I need, but I would certainly have enough. Everyone does. And just like a little kid at the ledge of the playground who can't fathom how someone can catch them from, so, from such a height, they jump. And they're caught in the embrace of one who loves them. And then Jesus says this in verse 29. He says, many people think this is Jesus scolding Thomas, but I think it's less of a scolding and more of a blessing for us. Says, then Jesus told Thomas, after Thomas says, my Lord, my God, Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. That's great. And not everybody's going to have that experience. We don't now. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's all of us here, those who have not seen Jesus. Verse 29 isn't really a rebuke to Thomas, as much as it is Jesus' blessing for us. Everybody in history, after Jesus ascends to heaven, this is us. We will not see the same way that Thomas does. We might think that we should demand maybe more proof, and we do. We have lots of things that we might demand proof about. The resurrection itself, we already talked about that. We want the body cam footage. We want CCTV. What does that actually look like? We're actually, we're given all that we need. The Bible itself, everything that we can't understand, we might think, is proof that God doesn't actually really know what he's doing. And only until we understand everything, well, then that's when I'll believe. Notice where you're putting the belief on it, like how much you can understand stuff. Or even the, the insanity of Jesus is God, or, or even the fact that there is a God that exists. Unless God looks like this, this, and this, we might say, I'm not going to believe because God has to conform to my standards. And if he does, then maybe I'll believe, if it's convenient. But, you know, I think, especially for those who are Christians, we demand proof in many more subtle ways. We can doubt that God loves us and demand that he proves it to us on terms that we supply. Like, if you do this, God, I will know that you love me. Or, Or maybe something, the opposite side has happened. You've been in a horrible, difficult circumstance in your life. It was traumatic. And your doubt might be speaking to you, saying, God didn't prevent this. So that's proof that he's not good. Or if he is, he's just not good to you. Now, how we live our lives will tell this story. If you work like hell, which is, I think, a very fitting phrase. If you work like hell, you might doubt that a good God is in control. Or maybe it's doubting that he's good enough and, or that you need to prove yourself. If you organize your life around the comfortable middle-class existence, you might doubt his care, his comfort. If you never tell anyone else about him, you probably doubt his goodness towards you, because why would you share it if it's not really worth it? Look, all of us are skeptics, and probably there's parts of, that, parts of those in every one of us. We're all doubters, but even skeptics can believe. Even those who doubt can believe. And Jesus, who's God himself, calls those who do believe, he calls them blessed. Jesus calls you blessed if you believe. If Christianity is truly a set of relationship and not a set of rules, then there is space for doubt and belief. It's about what we do with that doubt that matters. And we may not be able to see Jesus, but we can have experiences of him. We do have experiences of him. In fact, we already have today. Because every time we open this up, God opens his mouth. Every time we read these words, these are God's words to us. Every time we pray, we've already done that. We'll do it again, you know, many times this morning. We're speaking to him. All of us can experience the resurrected Jesus through his words, through prayer, through worship, through community. And I suspect probably all of us have. And even though we have experienced him, we still doubt. And he will still come to us I say, don't doubt, believe, trust me. <clears throat> now, our son's middle name is Thomas, uh, in part because it was a family name on both sides, which made it very easy. But also in part because of this story here. It's unfortunate, I think, that we call Thomas Doubting Thomas because I think he has obviously a lot more to offer. And hopefully, you come across, like, okay, maybe Thomas is actually like a positive figure instead of this negative figure in in the Bible's history. Uh, Because he was more than the only disciple, he was more than just the disciple who doubted, because they all did. The great thing about what Thomas did is he brought it to Jesus, he brought it to his community. I want that to be true of Colin. I want that to be true of myself. I want to do that more than I do now. And I would love for that to be true of my son. That's one reason why his middle name is Thomas. We tell him that now. He's like, okay, cool. He doesn't really get it yet. But one day, maybe he will. Airing our doubts with the church. Having a church community that is comfortable for people to air their doubts in, that's a big thing, right? Bringing our doubts to Jesus and believing them when he shows himself. Because if we have those doubts, there is a belief, I completely believe, that he will show himself in ways that we need, especially through his word, most predominantly through his word, in ways that we need. And he will be enough. We don't have to go overboard and overprove everything. So maybe a few things to take away from this story as we wrap up. Jesus is merciful to those who doubt. Completely merciful to Thomas here. Merciful to those who doubt. And we're actually commanded to do the same. Jude 22, verse 22 in Jude says, be merciful to those who doubt. And this is first for you. This isn't for other people. Don't have someone else in your head. This is for you. Jesus is merciful to you and your doubts. So you should be free to be merciful to yourself and your doubts. That means you will talk about them with others and with Jesus. There's no shame here. That would mean bringing these doubts up. You can't be merciful to someone if they aren't bringing those doubts up. So cultivating that, a community of, uh, of honesty and safety with each other. And so that means we need to be merciful to others and ourselves. Like Jesus, in patience and gentleness, taking a step towards instead of a step away. You know, when Thomas aired his doubt, Jesus didn't immediately, out of nowhere, show up and be like, Oh, but Thomas, I got the nail. I got the nail marks. I got this thing on my side. He waited a whole week. Like, Maybe we could stand to be a bit more patient. What would this look like in our missional communities if we were to kind of cultivate this kind of this faith life this way? And who are people in your life that don't believe, that have doubts? Because this changes how we pray. We pray they would bring their doubts to Jesus, bring their doubts to people in the church. The first thing to be merciful. The second thing is to doubt our doubts. Jesus does not want us to stay in our doubts. There's no merit in staying doubtful, in, in, in staying in uncertainty. He commands us out of them. He today is telling us to believe. It's like Jesus is saying, I'm glad you have doubts. It's so great that you're so, so authentic and honest. Maybe it's a, I don't know, if you think about it, maybe you can believe a little bit more. No, he's saying, believe. It's a much better life to live one out of belief. And part of belief is to doubt our doubts. Don't stop doubting. In fact, doubt more. But include your doubts in your doubts. The resurrected Jesus is telling us to stop doubting and believe for us to all say my Lord and my God in all parts of our lives. And I think that's what we need in order to be encouraging um, others uh, toward as well, to be merciful towards others and ourselves in doubt, to encourage others and ourselves to doubt our doubts and to believe. And when we do those things, instead of weaponizing our doubts to keep God and others at arm's length, we can use them as they ought to be used which is a way to grow closer to him in our relationship with him and in our relationships with each other. You know, when we share doubts with each other, that really does bind people together because it it gets to real life. The Lord's Supper is a way that us skeptics and doubters can act out how we trust the Lord. To eat and drink is a leap of faith, like the good version of a leap of faith, not the bad version of a leap of faith. What we're saying in our actions is, I may not know everything, But I do know that without you, God, I would wither and I would die, just as I would die without food and water. I don't know all the scientific stuff between not drinking and not eating and why I would die, so I keep eating. I mean, I I enjoy eating anyway. But you don't need to know all the scientific stuff to be like, actually, it's a good thing for me to eat. It's a good thing for us to believe. And that's why this is something uh, for those who believe. If Jesus isn't yet your Lord and your God, the way that Thomas talks about Jesus here, please don't eat and drink as if he is. But for all of us,